I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. This week, we're joined by two great Canadians, Jean Simard, the head of the Aluminum Association of Canada, and Denis Tremblay, the CEO of AIEQ, which represents Quebec's electricity companies. We'll cover the 11th hour agreement between the U.S. and Canada to remove aluminum tariffs and avoid new Canadian retaliation. And we'll catch up on a separate 232 investigation into imports of transformers and explain how tariffs might impact the North American electricity grid. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. We are joined today, gentlemen, by Jean Simard and Denis Tremblay, both Canadians. Jean is president and CEO of the Aluminum Association of Canada which represents Canada's primary aluminum industry, of course. Denny is president and CEO of AIEQ, the Association d'Industrie Electrique du Québec, and they represent Quebec's electricity industry. Gentlemen, welcome to The Trade Guys. So, Bill, Scott, we talk about Canada all the time. We love our Canadian friends up north. But the United States has not been showing Canada the love that The Trade Guys have been. I want to put this out there. Why does the administration continue to treat Canada, who is, of course, a NATO and NORAD partner, as a national security threat? And how does trade with Canada threaten national security? I want to put that out to all of you. Let's hear it. Well, I confess to bias. My mother was Canadian, so I'm a big fan of Canada and can't imagine a security threat. Do you have dual citizenship? No, but I'm going to look into it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. To me, it's been political in the sense that both the the steel and aluminum tariffs that were imposed were imposed to, I think, meet a domestic political imperative, namely demands from both industries for protection from states that are battleground states, that were battleground states in, in 2016 when Trump won, and they'll be battleground states again. Pennsylvania, Michigan primarily, Wisconsin to a lesser degree. Uh, And I think it really is designed, one, to deal with a political problem. Second, they kind of painted themselves in a box with the structure they chose to use. They chose to use a national security statute. Uh, But that, you know, if you think about it, I think they chose it because it was maximum flexibility and let the president do what he wants. On the other hand, it creates logical problems. If you're going to say that steel imports or aluminum imports are a national security threat, it gets very complicated to parse that further. You know, if, if they are a threat, why are they not a threat from Canada when they are a threat from the UK or a threat from Korea? I mean, if they're a threat, they're a threat. I think the answer is they're not a threat. But if you're going to take the position that they are in, in order to meet a political imperative, you're kind of la- then locked into the position of having to say everybody's a threat. And that's how we end up. Scott, you may look well, at it differently. Well, much like Bill, I have my own biases, which is, in my case, my younger daughter was born in Canada. I actually worked in Canada in the Toronto area for three years, including the year in which she was born. And so she does have, while we filed for her consular record of birth to get her U.S. citizenship, if she decides she wants to pay taxes in Canada, she can activate her right of birth. In any case, look, Bill's got it right. What you have is a statute, the Section 232, that is based on national security 
provisions. So when you only have a hammer, in the case of Section 232, everything has to look like a nail. And so the national security threat was driven by the provisions of the law that the administration wanted to use, and they had enough flexibility to do it. doesn't mean it was it was wise or right. Particularly, I, I find it absurd when it comes to North American aluminum, because after 30 plus years of free trade, I mean, free trade in aluminum goes back to the Canada-US free trade agreement in the Reagan administration. And what's resulted is a complete commercial integration of the market and breaking it apart or putting tariffs or trying to even treat it as an independent entity always struck me as sort of vandalism more than anything else. But it is what it is. Jean, Denise, laissez le bon temps rouler, non? Yeah. Well, from a Canadian standpoint and from an aluminium industry standpoint, it's a funny feeling to at last be a threat on such a big country as the U.S. Never thought I'd see the day. But if we go back through history, U.S. history, you will remember that uh, President uh, Roosevelt and Mackenzie King, our prime minister then, agreed to the creation of a permanent joint board on defense. So ever since those days and through the Hyde Park Declaration and more recently through the uh, Canada's becoming part of the national industrial perimeter, supply perimeter, we've always been part and parcel of the U.S. Uh, strategic perimeter for uh, supply source. In fact, we even established an Aryan defense base right next to our smelters during the Second World War to protect the aluminum supply for the Allied forces read here the U.S. So all of a sudden, we've become a threat for the same metal that you keep buying and bringing into the U.S. at the rate of about 2.8 million tons a year because you're consuming 6 million tons, but you're only producing at best 1 million tons. So I rest my case. You have the choice in terms of national security. You can get your metal from such countries as Russia, Middle East, China, or Canada, which is the biggest threat. And that sums it up very nicely. I don't think the administration spent much time looking at, at alternatives. You know, if you're, if you're going to put tariffs on Canadian imports and we don't make enough of the stuff, one result will be we'll probably make a little bit more. But the gap that you described is enormous uh, and the likelihood that we could fill that entire gap of production domestically is roughly zero. So that raises exactly the question you asked, which is where else are we going to get it from? Uh, and the choices are less reliable friends and allies. Let's bring Denny in on this. First, I agree with the way Jean, we, we must consider U.S. and Canada relationship based on openness, trust, and friendship. And it is, as it's been true for a very long time, and it is still true today. So clearly, Canada is not a threat to U.S. We are friends and partner. So secondly, I like to, to speak about electricity as uh, the ultimate commodity. You know, when you look at uh, how electricity is common to everyone, it's really easy to uh, forget about the complexity that is behind that. Just putting the switch hat on and having electricity uh, almost 100 of the time is some, some kind of a challenge that has been uh, always brought in complexity. So. The North American grid system is already highly integrated with multiple interconnection. So this is a plus for United States and Canada security challenge. 
As an example, just to give you an example amongst other, Hydro-Québec and other Canadian provinces are members of the North Atlantic Mutual Assistance Group, for example, along with 17 American utilities. So every year, Hydro-Québec sends elite crew of linemen, uh, experienced linemen, to help American utilities facing major uh, power outage. And this is uh, true for many, many things that are being uh, put in place. And, you know, at this moment, there's, I would say, concern about all sorts of uh, threat that may come uh, through cybersecurity, for example, or maybe a supply chain that should be reviewed in some way. But when you look at uh, all this, you know, it's, it's obvious that we need to work in a collaborative way because we have the uh, platform for that. For example, the North American Reliability Corporation has been put in place many years ago. And uh, it is a framework that includes all the area in Canada and U.S. without any uh, concern because it's the way to ensure reliability in, in our world is to work in a co collaborative way. So we are friends of U.S. and we think that if we want to improve ourselves, we need to do it together and really consider that we are friends and we must work in that direction. Well, Dennis, one thing you said that I, I just want to remind our listeners of, we, particularly Americans, I find, just take for granted so much of, of what goes on behind the scenes that delivers the kind of infrastructure that we rely on every day. And uh, as somebody who, who studied engineering and hard sciences in my early days, when you flip on that light switch and the power comes on, it is nothing short of a miracle that that system works and is as reliable as it is. And it's one of those things we, we all take for granted, but the level of effort that, that has gone in to create and develop and maintain that system that we just expect to be there is almost unimaginable. So, you know, we're, we're really glad for your partnership in that. But the other piece of good news here is that while we were going to have tariffs, I guess we're not. That was the news in the last couple of days. I, by the time we booked you on the show thinking we'd talk about tariffs. And now we've reached the point where I guess the, President decided, never mind. So how do we approach this going forward so we stay more constructive? I think that uh, let's have an example, that, let's say, to explain the, the complexity and how we could work together to improve things. Uh, let's speak about transformer. You know, transformer, just to make it simple, is some kind of a building block of a, a grid power system. A, a bulk power system needs, I would say, very strong block to be built and strong. And transformer, which is a passive device that is used to bring electricity at a higher level for transportation and then bring down for distribution, is really a key for that. So there's, I would say, concern actually in the industry about, uh, let's say, component of, of that. And in fact, the 232 that has been announced on the, the 4th of May uh, by the Department of Commerce is related to uh, what we call electrical steel or green-oriented electrical steel. It's, it's uh, just a variety of electrical steel. So this is a really a key ingredient to make those, those devices. And just to give you an, an example of the comparison with uh, the automotive uh, industry, when you look at bulk power system, we're talking about Formula One type equipment. It's really one of a kind equipment that you need to develop. And really there's a lot of science and high tech stuff that needs to be in. And one of the key ingredients to make uh, those uh, devices really, really performant is the uh, electrical steel. So electrical steel has been developed in a variety of grades. So there's not one electrical steel. There are probably 20 sort of alloys that has been developed. And it's not rare to have uh, one of those components that regroup 
allows that comes from all area in the world. So if at the end of the day, you put obstacle in such a way that you will probably end up to have a disrupt supply chain that might at the end brings costs at a higher level and then maybe delayed, uh, would say, uh, the really key ingredient that goes with that kind of uh, manufacture. So that's an example about other that uh, you, you need to be careful. And the only way and what we suggest at this moment is to have more uh, an open table of really expert that will look at that and uh, brings, I would say, ID to improve thing. You can always improve thing, but we have to do it not through rules, but with the expert that will help to bring, I would say, the right uh, decision at the end of the day. Let me put this out there. With all the back and forth, the mixed signals, what signal does this send to potential trading partners about U.S. reliability? Well, when you look at the sector, industrial sector, like the aluminum industry, it's a totally integrated value chain uh, across North America from all the way north to all the way to Mexico. And it's been structured to decades of investments in all three countries, Canada being the place where we have been naturally endowed with vast amounts of hydroelectrical energy in a country that it's, has a very low population density. So we're basically a resource-based country. And we've transformed this hydroelectricity, this vast amount of stranded capacity into aluminum, which is mostly set for expedition to the US. And when you export aluminum, what you're really exporting is energy. 30 to 40% of the cost of an ingot of aluminum is energy. So you're getting through aluminum, Canadian energy, clean, renewable, low carbon footprint hydroelectricity, making its way to your factories where you reprocess this metal to make parts to fill demands orders from a very large 300 million people consumer market plus whatever you can export. Now, you need in a value chain like this to make investments on an ongoing basis. And sometimes you have to leapfrog into the future, which is basically what we have to do at this point in time in 2020 and in the coming years in order to, amongst others, be more competitive with countries such as China that are overwhelmingly taking over our markets but also to address the carbon's need for decarbonization, which is a priority here in Canada. In order to do this, there's a requirement for billions of dollars of investments to move on to what we call 4.0 manufacturing. Now, if you have to invest billions of dollars in existing plans for expansions or remodernization, either in the US or in Canada, given what we've gone through over the past three years, four years, and what could be in stock for us for the next four years, would you really consider investing that amount of money with all the volatility that we have caused by tariffs, the magic wand of, of tariffs in dynamic markets such as aluminum or steel? I don't think so. So we really have to set our minds into making a free trade agreement such as USMCA come to life the right way for the right reasons with the three partners that are there. Can I ask you guys, what impact do these tariffs have 
on regular Americans and regular Canadians? The regular American story is all about the cost of everything, cost and availability, I think is the best way to see it. For instance, thanks to the shutdowns associated with the COVID pandemic, there's a shortage of aluminum cans. Why is there a shortage of aluminum cans? Well, people are buying their beer and soft drinks in cans instead of getting them served at a restaurant or, or bar where it'd be dispensed from a tap. Yeah, I, I wouldn't know anything about that. Just for those unclear on the <laughs> consumption habits of Americans, obviously, it's a disruption on the demand side of a supply chain, but it causes cost pressure and availability pressure on very basic items like aluminum cans. So if you want aluminum cans to not only be less available, but more expensive, then make everything in the United States, starting with generating the electricity from whether coal or natural gas or whatever your source of electric generating is. You got to build generating plants. You've got to make the bauxite. Start from scratch. Go wild. You'll have a much more expensive, much less available product versus the integration that is is capable in, in North America. Now, nobody sees that instantly, but people got upset when they couldn't find their specific sub-brand or variety of, of Coca-Cola products at the store. That would happen quite broadly. Oh, yeah. You know, in Cleveland, Ohio, you couldn't find caffeine-free Diet Coke, and my in-laws were going crazy for a while. And that's the shortage of aluminum cans was exactly why. Hmm. Did not know that. You know, when you look at the tariff, the U.S. is imposing on itself the equivalent of about one billion Canadian dollars of tariffs on imported aluminum. It goes up in the air. It just, just goes to the U.S. Treasury. It's inflationary. It doesn't do anything for the consumer. It just increases the cost of your aluminum can, increases the cost of your cars, your appliances and everything. And the only ones that are making money out of this are Swiss traders based in Switzerland, making more money as they push Russian metal and some local companies metal into the market. And to go back to what you just mentioned, if you go by Comparative advantage, if you wanted to build the energy hydroelectricity capacity required to produce your own aluminum for 6 million tons, you would have to have the equivalent of about six Hoover dams capacity in production year after year, or all the energy that's consumed by 7 million Americans. I think your energy can be put to better use. If I can add to this, in our world of uh, where electricity is really a key for uh, energy tr transition, just to give you some, some idea about what is taking place actually all over the world, the international energy agencies actually are not saying that the growth uh, in the energy mix for uh, green electricity or electricity, but mostly green electricity, will start from actually being 19% uh, to uh, in the range of 24% by 2040, which is a huge step, you know, because we all uh, cross energy mix uh, in the world. So if you add up to this, the need for more uh, energy efficient device, then you end up with the uh, electric steel market to be at the range of uh, $22.2 billion and should grow at a compound annual growth rate of 6.6% for the year to come till the 2025. So it's a very, very interesting market that we're looking for. And it goes with drivers that really are, are true, uh, not only in America, but all over the world. The replacement of all assets in TND, the development of new interconnection for the bulk power system, for example, the advent of electric vehicle, the development of recharge infrastructure, 
improvement of uh, energy efficiency. All this will, will give, I would say, a very good opportunity for uh, US-based company to take share of uh, part of that uh, growth, let's say, uh, all over the world. So, in fact, if you look at that growth, really, we need to keep, I would say, our eye open to all these opportunities for, uh, let's say, North American company to, to be competitive in that new uh, ball game. Bill, you've been awfully quiet here. We got to get you back in the saddle. Yeah, I was going to go back to something that you said and then ask Jean a question. Yesterday, I think, was a good day for Canada because the United States backed down and they said, you know, we were going to eliminate the tariffs uh, retroactively to uh, September 1st, which means there's only a couple of weeks worth of exports that are going to get caught. But then Ambassador Lighthizer also said something about uh, expected uh, shipments over the next uh, several months, actually three or four months, and laid out target numbers in terms of tons uh, for those shipments and said that if the uh, shipments were, I think, more than 105% over those numbers, then they would uh, rethink putting the tariffs back on. And uh, the Canadian government immediately said this was not a, an agreement. This was something they, the United States had just really said unilaterally. What do you think about that? First of all, are the numbers that he cited, are, are those realistic expectations of what is going to happen in the market anyway? Uh, or are they low numbers so that we're guaranteed to revisit this whole issue in a couple of months? Well, we've been, first of all, we're very happy with the news about getting rid of tariffs and certainly recognize once again that our government has been, has been standing on guard, drawing the line in the sand very early on and keeping it the way it is, which is, you know, this is not a negotiated agreement on, with the U.S. on quotas. Uh, the U.S. has chosen to unilaterally lift its tariffs on Canadian aluminum exports and added that if the U.S. reverts for any reason in any way at any point in time to tariffs, Canada is ready with its own list of uh, products to be tariffed. So this being said, those numbers are U.S. numbers. They're carved out of thin air, most likely. Are they too much? Are they too little? Basically, all we've been doing and will keep doing as a primary production industry based in Canada is responding to market shifts. And the numbers that went up during COVID, it's exactly the same situation that happened all over the world, which is huge plants with kilometers long of aluminum pipelines pivoting to basic commodity and gut in order to avoid shutting down at costs of hundreds of millions of dollars all over the world when the COVID started and manufacturing shut down, upstream primary production pivoted, produce and sell to traders, to the market, basic commodity and gut that is stockpiled in warehouses all over the world to do a financial play. So basically, uh, we don't see any ground in looking at those numbers because it was strictly contextual. In effect, the same situation unfolded during the last great financial crisis of 2008 and 9. So it's just a remake of something that we're used to see in the aluminum sector. We don't attach any importance to those numbers because Canada is not bound by this announcement of the U.S. in terms of conditionality. You know, I wish some plucky reporter would someday ask Ambassador Lighthizer or somebody from USTR, precisely what is the problem with higher demand? 
Why is higher demand a problem? Because last I checked, we spent about six months, the United States Treasury and the, and the Congress and the Federal Reserve, basically dumping trillions of dollars on the U.S. economy and on U.S. consumers. Might as well have been dropping $100 bills off out of helicopters to get people to spend, to, to keep from economic collapse during the COVID shutdown. Okay, so we get a little more demand. Why is that bad? I, I thought that was what we were trying to stimulate. All right, well, we got to round up some plucky reporters for the next episode of Trade Guys <laughs> and haul them in here. I'm thinking Doug Palmer, Jake Schlesinger, you know, a few others. Like, we got we to haul them in here. I've got one more really important question for John. Why do we say aluminum and everybody else in the world says aluminum? Uh, that's a good question. It was uh, basically, my understanding is that two guys at uh, each uh, in a different point in the world, one in France, a person called Hiru, and another guy called Hall patented at about the same time the electrolytic process. And the word used at one end was aluminum, which lacked the I, whereas in the rest of the world, it's called aluminum. So it's a spelling mistake when it was patented at one end of the world. And the two words, different words remain through time. So once again, it's the fault of the French, right? <laughs> we did to blame a lot of things on France. because it's One more thing Canada. we can blame on. We, we, we're good at apologizing, so we apologize for, for that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, gentlemen, no apologies necessary. The trade guys are constantly apologizing for their behavior, and I apologize on behalf of them. But thank you so much for being here today. This is a fascinating discussion. We hope to have you back, you know, and try to figure out why the United States and Canada can't get it together here when we share an electrical grid, when we can't seem to agree on the pronunciation of the word aluminum, but we need to get on the same page. So thanks for shedding light on this very complex yet critical issue. You know, you guys should hope that we don't have you back. Because if we have you back, it'll be because the United States is doing more tariffs. We'd rather let you do your work. <laughs> so, but it's yeah. probably best if we don't see you again, but uh, we'll be happy to have you if the need arises. Same here. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Take care. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.